Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Willy, Willy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Then who, indeed, because we've come to quite a tricky part of this series and a section of history that I've been slightly dreading because it gets quite complicated. And the idea of succession, of who is going to take the throne, becomes highly disputed and the crown ends up being tossed around like a frisbee. And as it's so complicated, I'm going to break all my rules, strictly one monarch per episode, and break Henry VI's reign down into two parts. Henry VI, parts one and two. If it's good enough for Shakespeare, the Bard of Avon, it's good enough for me. Charlie Higson, the Bard of Tufnell Park, North London, N7. One of the complications with Henry is that he and his successor, Edward IV, both had the dubious honour of ruling England twice. So the rhyme should probably go one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then Edward, then Henry, then Edward again. But that's not so catchy. Yes, Henry VI and Edward IV were the only two monarchs in English history to rule twice. Essentially, Henry VI rules into his thirties, loses his grip, the country descends into civil war. He's deposed by Edward IV and his army. And then Edward's deposed and Henry's put back on the throne, but not for long because Edward IV comes back with an even bigger army, deposes Henry for the last time and locks him up in the Tower of London where he's killed. So however I do this, the episodes with Henry and Edward are going to get tangled up. So I thought I'd try and untangle it a bit and spread this part of the story out a little. 
I'll focus on Edward IV in the third episode of this little run, and in this first part we'll focus on what happened in France during Henry's reign as we reach the conclusion of the Hundred Years' War. I think it'll be good to get the war in France out of the way before we get stuck into the civil war that immediately followed it in England, which became known as the Wars of the Roses. It wasn't called that at the time. It was just called another bloody civil war. And I think it was Walter Scott who came up with the term Wars of the Roses in a romantic historical novel that he wrote. Uh, It was Shakespeare who came up with this idea that the different supporters for the different factions in the war uh, would pick different coloured roses, the red rose and the white rose, to denote which side they were on. There is no historical evidence that this ever happened. And the idea of the roses, the red rose and the white rose, finally being united with the Tudor rose into one badge of England was an invention of the Tudors to kind of legitimise their completely illegitimate monarchy. So by dividing things out a bit and saving the Wars of the Roses for the next episode and concentrating more on the Hundred Years' War in this episode, it means that we can also spend a bit of time looking at one of the most fascinating and extraordinary characters in history, Joan of Arc. And I'm really pleased that we have Helen Castor back as my guest on this episode, as she wrote a brilliant book on Joan of Arc. So this episode will conclude with what was essentially the final battle of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Castillon in 1453, when King Henry was 32 years old and still on the throne, albeit rather shakily. And then in the next episode, as I say, we'll get into the Wars of the Roses, And they will rumble off and on right through the reigns of Edward IV, Edward V, uh, and ending up with Richard III. So you've got plenty of time to get your heads around it all, as have I. Uh, I'm trying to make sense of this as I go along. After that, we'll finally move on to the next stage of history, as we bid the Plantagenets farewell and let the bloody Tudors take centre stage. So... Henry VI. He was born in Windsor in 1421 and almost immediately took the throne as England's youngest ever reigning monarch, only nine months old. And he ruled off and on for the rest of his life. I say off and on because, as I mentioned earlier, he and Edward IV took turns to rule. Also, as Henry had mental health issues, for long periods of his reign, others were ruling in his place as protectors or defenders of the realm. As well as being King of England, he was also the only English monarch to also rule France. From 1422 to 1453, just over 30 years, he was King of France. Although this was disputed by the French, so I should probably say that he was King of France in name only. If you remember from our last episode, his father, King Henry V, sorry, this is complicated talking about these two Henrys, so I will have to keep calling them Henry V and Henry VI. So Henry V, having defeated the French at Agincourt, forced through a treaty with the mad French King Charles VI, the one who ran through the palace howling like a wolf and believed he was made of glass. So the Treaty of Troyes set out that when Charles died, Henry V would inherit the throne and rule all of France. The treaty also set out that Henry would marry Charles's daughter, 
Catherine of Valois to completely fully seal and cement this deal. So Catherine was the mother of our current king, Henry VI, and his father, Henry V, never saw his son. He was still campaigning in France when the boy was born, trying to make the treaty stick, and he died young of dysentery. So that when mad King Charles died soon after, this little baby boy, nine months old, Henry VI, automatically inherited the throne of France. So Henry V has gone down in history as a great warlike leader, tough and ruthless and charismatic, a great leader of men. His son, Henry VI, seems to have been the complete opposite, perhaps because of his French blood. It's very possible he inherited some instability from his grandfather, King Charles. But Henry VI, as I say, was opposite to Henry V. For a start, he was a pacifist. He was timid, shy, passive, kind and generous. In fact, perhaps too generous. In later life, he got into financial troubles by being too extravagant with members of his family and his immediate court, rewarding them with money and lands that he could ill afford. He doesn't ever seem to have fully grasped how things worked. He was very well-intentioned, he was pious, he was compassionate, but he was also given to being suspicious, even paranoid. And the people of England felt that he hadn't imposed enough order and justice on a country that was falling apart under his rule. He doesn't really seem to have been that interested in politics and governance. He liked to dress well and enjoy himself. He just wanted to have fun, which meant that he neglected his royal duties. In many ways, he was quite childlike and could perhaps best be described as simple, with all the positive and negative connotations of the word. As I say, he also had mental health issues that worsened during the 1440s and eventually put him into a complete catatonic state, uh, which was one of the leading causes of the war of succession that blew up around this time. He also inherited money problems from his father. Pursuing a war in France was ruinously expensive and despite the Treaty of Troyes, Henry V was only able to raise taxes in France from those counties that he had full control of. The great swathe of France itself gave him nothing, which meant that he had to keep raising money in England to pay for all this. It's perhaps no wonder that when young Henry VI eventually became old enough to start ruling the country himself, he was quite anti-war. In many ways, his story is quite a sad one. He was totally unfit to be a king. He died in 1471, 50 years old, incarcerated in the Tower of London, where he was probably murdered on the orders of his successor, Edward IV. So when he's an infant, he lives with his mother, Catherine of Valois. But as he gets older, he begins to move away from her and she's increasingly sidelined and excluded from the workings of the English court. I think as a French woman, she was viewed with some suspicion, a possible enemy agent, as it were. And no ordinary French woman at that. She was royalty, the daughter of mad King Charles. And she didn't really have a say in the Regency Council that was put together to rule the country until Henry was old enough to take over himself. 
There are reports that Henry attended Parliament when he was three years old and quite disgracefully behaved like a small child. Uh, I recently returned from Mallorca on a flight during half term that was filled with squalling toddlers. So I can well imagine the scene in Westminster and how irritating it must have been for the people trying to run the bloody country. Amazingly, though, the English nobility and clergy were very loyal to Henry, despite him being only a child. And for the first few years, things seemed to run fairly smoothly. So this ruling council was put together from members of Henry's immediate family, particularly two uncles and a great uncle. For the last couple of years of Henry V's life and reign, while he was away campaigning in France, he'd left the running of England to his brother Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, uncle of Henry VI, and he became a key member of this ruling council alongside Henry's other uncle, John, the Duke of Bedford. And the other key member of this ruling council is young Henry's great uncle, Henry Beaufort, the Bishop of Winchester and later a cardinal. Now, if you cast your mind back to Edward III, you will remember, I'm sure you will remember, that he had these sons, Edward the Black Prince, Lionel the Duke of Clarence, John of Gaunt and Edmund, none of whom inherited Edward the Black Prince died and the succession skipped a generation and went through to Richard II. But John of Gaunt's son, Henry Bolingbroke, went to war with Richard II, deposed him and took over. So John of Gaunt is a very powerful figure. He is the founder of the Lancastrian branch of the family, the Plantagenet family. And after John of Gaunt's first wife, Blanche, dies, he marries again his mistress, Catherine Swinford, or Swineford, and starts another family, originally illegitimate. They are legitimised by the Pope and become known as the Beauforts. So these are half-brothers and sisters to first Henry IV, then Henry V, and Henry VI. So the Beauforts and the Lancasters are very, very close, and the Beauforts become the chief supporters of Henry VI and the Lancastrian branch of the family. Henry Beaufort, Cardinal Henry Beaufort, is the son of John of Gaunt, and therefore young Henry VI's great-uncle. So these three men are chiefly in charge of running the country and also running the war in France, which is ongoing after Henry V's death. And to start with, things go very well for the army, for the country and for the infant Henry. So I'll just recap and remind you exactly what the Hundred Years' War was about, because it was such um, an important part of history at this time, not just English history, but French history. And as with anything in history, there's always this question of how far back do you go to explain it? You know, what are the origins of this war? Stanley Kubrick took things right back to the birth of mankind when one ape man picked up the jawbone of a dead animal and smashed the brains out of his enemy. Uh, but I don't need to go quite that far back, but I do need to go back as far as the Norman invasion. So William the Conqueror comes over and England is colonised by essentially the French. So William has this mini empire which encompasses England, 
and Normandy in northern France, but he's also still campaigning in northern France to take control of some of these other counties. And the Normans are very much looking towards France and just using England as a sort of um, home base. William's granddaughter Matilda then marries into a different French family, the Plantagenets, who have their base at Anjou, another very powerful county in the north of France. So this expands Anglo-French territory from not just Normandy, we now have Anjou. So her son Henry rules as our first Plantagenet monarch, Henry II, and he marries Eleanor of Aquitaine, which means that the Anglo-English are now also in control of this huge swathe of southwestern France. This area, which sometimes seems to be called Aquitaine and sometimes seems to be called Gascony, depending on who you're talking to. So Henry II has this huge empire, and this is the biggest that the Anglo Empire ever gets. It stretches from the borders of Scotland right down to the Pyrenees, encompassing about half of France. But over the next centuries, there's a series of disputed crowns in the UK, which weakens our um, ability to campaign effectively in France and to hold on to these territories. Um, and this coincides with growing power of the French monarchy in Paris. So the empire shrinks. This Anglo-French empire gets smaller and smaller. It's chipped away at. Edward II, a weak king who's losing the grip on everything, including territories in France, makes a political marriage with Isabella, daughter of King Philip IV of France, who goes down in history as another she-wolf. If you remember, she has an affair with Roger Mortimer, deposes her own husband, Edward, who is murdered in captivity. And Isabella campaigns that her son, Edward III, technically should inherit the French throne from Philip IV, because Isabella's three oldest brothers, Louis X, Philip V and Charles IV, French kings are even more confusing than the English kings. They're all called either Philip, Louis or Charles for hundreds of years. Um, they got huge numbers to try and remember, so they're all given nicknames. These three princes, there's Louis the Quarreller, Philip the Tall and Charles the Bald. They all die young. Louis dies after a game of tennis when he drinks too much cold wine and dies of either pleurisy or pneumonia. The others die of various illnesses, which means that Isabella is the only surviving child of Philip IV. So technically her son Edward III could inherit the French throne, but the French quickly set in stone this idea of Salic law, that you can't inherit on the female side. And so a nephew of Philip IV's from a different family takes the throne and becomes Philip V. But Edward III decides he wants to have a crack at getting the throne back and leads an invasion into France. Did he really think he could take the French throne or was he just using this as an excuse to be able to take back control of some of these lost territories and maybe come to a deal with the King of France that would um, restore English power in some parts of France? And together with his son, Edward the Black Prince, initially has great success, the battles of Cressy and Poitiers. But then after Edward's death, Richard II comes to the throne, another weak king, and things fall apart. And as we've seen, Henry Bolingbroke deposes Richard. He sits slightly shakily on the throne. He's too busy shoring up things in England to worry too much about France, but his son Henry V 
as a way of uniting the country and getting them behind him, reignites the Hundred Years' War, goes into France with the Battle of Agincourt, which leads to the Treaty of Troyes. So for the first few years of Henry VI's life and reign, things are going well in France. He's technically the King of France. Mad King Charles had to disinherit his own son Charles in favour of Henry V. So his son is this kind of rootless prince known as the Dauphin. But then in 1429, everything changes. When Henry VI is only eight years old, something happens which completely alters the course of the Hundred Years' War and changes history. A 17-year-old girl called Joan of Arc arrives on the scene. She's absolutely nothing. A peasant from Domremy in northeast France. And she announces one day that she's been having visions. She's been visited by various saints and the Archangel Michael. And they've told her that France will only be saved if the Dauphin is crowned King of France and the English are kicked out. And she's taken seriously. She must have been an incredible young girl to have even made it out of the village. But she does. She makes her way across France, which is in the middle of this war with England. She finds the Dauphin, who is set up outside of Paris, and she goes to him and says, I'm going to sort everything out for you. But normally, you know, if a nutter turns up in the royal court and says, oh, I've got a message from the Dauphin, from the Archangel Michael, um, she's going to be sent packing. But she's allowed in and she convinces the Dauphin that she's right. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go into this too deeply now because I want to talk to Helen Castor later on because she is such an expert on this, of how she managed to get the ear of the Dauphin and how she managed to persuade him to put her in charge of his army. He does. He sends her off to where the main British army is besieging the city of Orléans. So Joan is leading the army and she wins. She defeats the English army. She lifts the siege. They managed to imprison various high-ranking Englishmen. And suddenly, things tip in favour of the French. She becomes this totemic, this talismanic figure, given her own suit of armour and a horse and her own coat of arms. And she leads the French army to, to other victories. And she doesn't win the war outright there and then. It goes on for another 15-odd years. But from this point on, it goes in favour of the French. Now, the other complication we have in France is that just as in England we have these warring factions, in France we have these warring factions. Because things are up in the air, we have this English child king nominally ruling in Paris. We have the Dauphin with his own power base saying, I should be king. And then we have the various dukes of Burgundy. Burgundy, this enormously powerful county in the northeast of France. And the Burgundians have been trying to take control of the throne, so they've made all these treaties and alliances with the English to fight against the French, but they've been a bit slippery. And they'll occasionally switch sides and help the French against the English because they don't want the English to become too powerful because it's the Burgundians themselves who want to take control. But what happens is... Joan of Arc gets the Dauphin crowned King of France, not in Paris, but in Reims. 
he becomes Charles VII in 1429. Not long after this, Joan is captured by the Burgundians. She's given to the English. The English try her as a heretic and she's burned at the stake this quite ghastly form of execution that the English had not that long ago brought in as the correct punishment for heretics. But even at the time, the English think afterwards, oh no, we've done the wrong thing. We should really not have done that. She was quite a special person. This was an awful thing to do. And in fact, a bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you strike her down, she can only come back more powerfully. She becomes even more this sort of, this great martyr she is now, this symbol of France and French resistance. And it probably works out quite well for the Dauphin because she would have started to be a bit of an irritant. She might have wanted to start to take too much power and to boss him around a bit. So she's probably more used to the Dauphin dead as well. And again, this is another question I shall be asking Helen. But this throws the English into a panic. There are now two kings in France. The Dauphin has this splendid, majestical French ceremony. And the English nobility think... Oh my God, we've got to get Henry to Paris and get him properly crowned. So they rush over to France, but they get caught up in, in the war that's going on there. And he gets stuck in Rouen for a year before he can even get to Paris. And once he gets there, his coronation is cobbled together. It's a complete shambles. It happens at Notre Dame. He's actually crowned by Henry Beaufort, Cardinal Henry, his great uncle, and there's big arguments with the local French clergy because they think the English are being too English about it. Uh, and the English think the French are being too French. A group of locals get in and mount a protest. You know, they have, they have banners saying, yeah, not my king, not my king. But the whole thing is a bit of a joke. And it actually sort of sours relationships between the English and the French in Paris. Henry's quickly taken back to England. He never returns to France. Even though ostensibly he's king there, he never goes back. And to make things worse for him and to make his position even shakier, the Burgundians eventually sign a truce with King Charles VII, the Dauphin, and say, OK, we believe you are our legitimate king. So Henry has been royally stitched up. And things are not great at home. He inherited this big deficit from his father's war. The war has still been going on, draining money. Crops are failing. There's a huge depression in England. And there's a really interesting factor that comes into this, which is, you know, it's not often discussed when you're looking at the Wars of the Roses and what was going on in England. And it's something I didn't really know about to looking into this, is that during Henry's reign, there is a start of what is called a bullion famine. It essentially means that Europe is running out of gold and silver. For a start, the Black Death had drastically reduced mining by effectively reducing the number of miners. And there were very old-fashioned mining practices in place. And so a lot of the old mines have become unproductive and have been shut down. So there is a limited supply of gold and silver. And without gold and silver, you can't make coins. And without coins, you can't do business. And because uh, trade has massively opened up to the east, through the Middle East and on into China, there's a huge amount of coinage, which is leaving Europe and migrating 
eastwards. This is further exacerbated by one of the Chinese dynasties deciding to give up on the idea of paper money, which they had so cleverly invented, and go back to silver coinage, which means they suddenly need a whole load of silver. So bullion is running out in Europe. Coins are running out in Europe. Trade suffers massively. It causes a, a huge economic slump, which leads to you know, low wages, it leads to starvation. In fact, it's probably the biggest impetus for the exploration of the Americas. It is a need to find a fresh source of gold and silver. And of course, it is during the 15th century that Columbus makes it to America. And we start to get this, this new source of gold and silver coming back. It also means that there is um, a revolution in mining practices. A lot of the old mines are reopened with, with modern mining practices. And it also means that the the European powers are starting to go down into Africa to steal their resources, essentially. So it, it is interesting that, that, that these great world movements are influenced by something that you don't think about, which is the fact that there is a finite supply of gold and silver. And if your currency is, is based on that, is backed from that, you're in deep trouble. So the bullion famine leads to what's known as the Great Slump. Um, because the other effect of the Hundred Years' War is that there are all these economic and physical blockades so it's very difficult to trade between these countries. You know, it's similar to what's going on in Ukraine and, and Russia. You know, we put sanctions on Russia, which means we are suddenly cut off from trade with Russia. Um, supplies can't come out of Ukraine. So it's very similar things happening in the Hundred Years' War. So cloth exports from, from England, which is one of our biggest industries, they fall by about between a third and 90% in some parts of, of southern England. So on the back of this, there is a strong movement in England to forget France, to say it's a lost cause, and to try and come to some kind of an agreement with the French, so that there is a, a peace party within Parliament this is led by Henry's great-uncle Henry Beaufort, the Bishop of Winchester, the Cardinal Beaufort, and another aristocrat, William de la Pole, who is the Earl of Suffolk, so a very powerful family in the east of England. Then we have the War Party, who want to continue what Henry V started. And they're led by Henry VI's uncle Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, and his cousin Richard, the Duke of York. So this is the Yorkist branch of the family who were descended from Edward III's younger son, Edmund. Now we'll get into this whole complicated family structure more in the next episode. But all you need to remember here is we've got these three strands of the royal family. We've got the Lancasters, which is Henry VI. We've got his previously illegitimate kind of half-brothers and sisters, the Beaufort branch of the family, who are completely on the Lancastrian side. And then we have the York branch of the family, coming down from Edward III's youngest son. And Richard, Duke of York, is furious with the way things are being run. He feels that the Beauforts and William de la Pole are useless. They are incompetent leaders in France, and they are trying to cover their asses by stopping the war because they don't know how to pursue it properly. So Henry's uncles, 
Richard, Duke of York, and Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, are this separate faction within Parliament. And it sets up a, a, a big rivalry between these two branches. By 1437, young Henry is old enough to take over as king. He is a man now that he is 16. And so he is in a position to take sides. He sides with the Peace Party, with the Beauforts and William de la Pole. And another younger Beaufort enters the story here. This is Edmund, another Edmund, I'm afraid, um, who becomes uh, something of an ally of Henry, who eventually makes him the Duke of Somerset. So Henry wants peace. The war is going badly since Joan of Arc's time, and everyone agrees that the best thing to do is for Henry to make some kind of political marriage. They look at marrying him to a Scottish princess to secure things with Scotland. They look at trying to marry him to a daughter of the French King Charles, but the French having none of that, there's no way they're going to let the English have that amount of power again. They look at a possible German alliance, but eventually they settle on this young woman called Margaret of Anjou, who is a niece of Charles VII. So she's close enough to the royal family, but not too close to give the English that much power. Henry goes along with the idea, particularly because he finds out that um, she's uh, something of a looker. Oh, yeah, she's a smashing dolly bird, that Margaret of Anjou. <laughs> but it's interesting to look at what happens, because normally in a marriage at this time, the, the wife has to bring a dowry. She has to bring family riches to give to her husband. But the French think just marrying her is enough. And in fact, they want the English to give them things. So we see where, where the balance of power lies here. And a secret deal is done. And this marriage is all arranged and brokered by William de la Pole, the Duke of Suffolk. He agrees to give the French the county of Maine, this enormously important, strategically crucial county in northwest France. And it's kept secret from the English people because they know that the English are not going to like this at all. It is also kept secret from Uncle Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, and cousin Richard of York. So William de Pole sorts this all out. He even does the negotiating with Margaret of Anjou. Henry doesn't meet her at this stage, so William deals with all this and then brings Margaret back to England. They become firm friends and Margaret becomes big friends of William de Pole's wife, Alice, who is Alice Chaucer. She's the granddaughter of Geoffrey Chaucer. William de Pole has been this very powerful figure. He was one of Henry V's military leaders um, during the Agincourt campaign. He was one of the commanders at Orléans. He was actually captured by the French and eventually ransomed by the Count of Dunois. Um, although there is some gossip around that he never actually paid the ransom and that he still owes the Count of Dunois, and that's why he is being so favourable to the French, and later on is even accused of plotting against the English on behalf of the French. But Margaret is brought back to England, there's a big marriage ceremony, all goes well, but it's not long before the cat is out of the bag. 
this dirty deal to give away Maine to the French, I mean, it's not like you can keep it secret. This is a huge plot of land in France which suddenly is under French rule. And William de la Pole takes the blame for this. Henry and Margaret, who, who like him, try to protect him because Margaret realises there is intrigue at court. She realises that her husband, Henry VI, is in a very weak position and that there is this powerful power base ranged against him with Uncle Humphrey of Gloucester and Richard of York. At this point, obviously, Henry doesn't have any children, so the next in line to the throne is Uncle Humphrey. So if anything happened to Henry, Humphrey would take the throne. So there is a lot of suspicion from the, from the peace camp, as we could call it, in, in the court, and particularly Margaret and Henry. And it seems that Henry becomes quite paranoid, doesn't trust his uncle Humphrey, starts making accusations against him. First of all, he accuses Humphrey's wife of witchcraft and accuses her of plotting to kill him with black magic. And Humphrey can do nothing to protect her. And soon after that, Humphrey himself is accused of treason by Henry and Margaret. And he's arrested. He's locked up. And he dies before he comes to court. He probably has a heart attack. There is inevitably gossip that Margaret has had him poisoned, but there is no evidence for this. So we've seen this position where a monarch is taking sides. He has favourites at courts. He's going with the Beauforts, his great uncle Henry, and this new younger Edmund Beaufort, and also William de la Pole. He is giving them honours and money and he's stuffing his household with even more courtiers that he thinks are going to favour his cause. And so he's becoming very unpopular with the other members of court. He's becoming very unpopular with the people. And particularly when he um, has Humphrey arrested and Humphrey dies. Richard, Duke of York, is the most pissed off out of anyone and the most dangerous to Henry, who uh, makes him the governor of Ireland to get him out of the way, sends him off to Ireland, which Richard is not very happy about, although it does allow him to build something of a power base there. And this younger Beaufort, Edmund Beaufort, is made Duke of Somerset, as I say, and then he is given command of the armies in France, which was previously Richard's job. So Richard has been completely sidelined. Edmund has come to the fore. Edmund's an interesting character. He had an affair with Catherine of Valois, Henry VI's mother, Henry V's widow. Uh, and it is rumoured at court, although there's no evidence for this, that he then has an affair later on with Margaret of Anjou. But whatever the case, he becomes the main power at court. Henry is still this weak, fluffy monarch. And he's not a very popular character, particularly as his command of the armies in France is disastrous. The war goes from bad to worse. More and more land is being lost. Parliament and the people turn on the king. Well, it's one of these occasions where nobody can actually directly attack the king. It's always got to be his bad advisers. And so they're not very happy with Edmund Beaufort, but they're particularly unhappy with William de la Pole the Duke of Suffolk. And Dillapole's nickname was Jackanapes because he had a monkey on his heraldic badge. And apparently at the time, the nickname for a monkey was Jack of Naples. God knows why. 
And so that's the word jackanapes comes from. And that's what he became called. And the London mob turned on poor old jackanapes. Henry and Margaret tried to protect him. And eventually, rather than try to arrest him or execute him or whatever, they, they banish him. And he tries to escape to France. But the sailors on his ship capture him. They have this mock trial and they behead him. And his body is found on the beach at Dover. Henry is becoming quite mentally unstable through this period. And rather than try and sort out the problems, he seems much more interested in, in architecture and in developing institutions. He founds Eton College, Eton School, and builds this amazing chapel there. He founds King's College in Cambridge and, and builds a similar chapel there. This seems to be a lot more what he's interested in than trying to sort the country out. The French keep uh, raiding along the south coast because at this point we have no real navy to speak of. The cloth trade with the low countries is really affected and this all adds to the economic and social problems that are going on in the country and by the end of the decade questions are being asked about his ability to rule. As I say, Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset, is losing very badly in France. There are all these disgruntled troops returning home, uh, wandering around unpaid and pissed off and willing to sell themselves to the highest bidder um, if anyone wants to put together an army to, to try and sort out some of these problems. There's a revolt in Kent similar to the Peasants' Revolt under Watt Tyler, this soldier, Jack Cade, puts together an army and leads them to London, saying he wants to get rid of these awful advisers around the king and that we should put Richard of York in charge. Henry it seems to be incapable of dealing with Jack Cade, and it's the people of London who kick him out. They, they put together their own army, London being this sort of mini-kingdom of its own, and it is they who get rid of Jack Cade and kill him. So Richard of York over in Ireland is seen as the man who would be king, the man who should be king. He's a good military leader. He understands the working of parliaments and he is persuaded to come back from Ireland unofficially, puts together a small army, comes to London. There's a bit of a standoff. There's a lot of toing and froing. Margaret desperately trying to prop up her husband's side of things. Richard claiming he's not trying to depose the king, he's just trying to get rid of his bad advisers, particularly Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset. And an agreement is reached. Richard is forced to swear allegiance to Henry. Henry and Margaret agree to curtail Edmund Beaufort. They agree to arrest him, although this never actually happens. So some form of a truce is made with Richard in this position of being a sort of protector of the realm while Henry sorts his shit out. And then there is this final decisive battle in the Hundred Years' War, 1453, the Battle of Castillon. The English have finally defeated in France and Henry has a full mental breakdown. And we'll pick up his story in the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's talk about Joan of Arc with a wonderful Helen Castor. Hello, Helen. Thank you for having me again. Have you finished your book on Richard II? <laughs> I think I have. I'm waiting for my editor to agree. And right. if he doesn't agree, there'll be a lot of trouble. <laughs> so when you were on before, you talked about Richard and before that, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it's great to have you back to talk about another powerful woman from the Middle Ages, Joan of Arc. But before we get into that, could you just briefly recap for us and clarify what exactly was going on in France at the time? This three-way rivalry between the English, the French and the Burgundians. Calling them the Burgundians rather covers over the fact that they were also French. You're absolutely right to say a three-way battle but what it was, was a civil war within France. Two sides of French, each calling the other the false French. And then the English slip into the door they've left open behind them in Normandy. So it's in 1419-1420, the point at which these two sides within France, the Burgundians and the Armagnac, as they've come to be known, it's very French, I think, to call both sides after very fine drinks. <laughs> so is the Armagnac, is that the king, the royalty? Um, well, the actual king at this stage, Charles VI, who is pretty much mad and certainly incapable for large stretches of time, gets passed between the two sides like a, a pass-the-parcel game, except you're trying to get the parcel because once you've got the king... Well, a bit like when the music stops. If you're holding the king when the music stops, you can claim <laughs> to be the government. And so the Burgundians and the Armagnacs, uh, the civil war's been going on for best part of a decade by 1420. Um, but the civil war has become so bloody and awful that the Dauphin, the last remaining son of the poor mad king Charles VI, murders the Duke of Burgundy on a bridge at Montereau in 1420 and once the blood feud has been dug into this conflict so brutally there is no chance that they can make up and fight the English together. Henry V of England spies his chance and makes a deal with the Burgundian side who are outraged by the murder of their duke. So from 1420 onwards Henry V of England is the heir to the throne of France according to the Burgundian French and according to the Armagnac French, the whole other side are traitors to the cause and the Dauphin, of course, should succeed his father. It's an enormous mess. But ultimately, 
presumably the Burgundians don't really want Henry V. A lot of them do, because anything instead of the murderer of their duke. Right. A lot of the Burgundian French are intensely loyal to English France, because the alternative is worse. Paris, for example, is held by the Burgundians. They welcome Henry V in. Henry V doesn't conquer Paris. He is welcomed in as the new heir to the true kingdom of France. And all that remains is to get rid of this pesky dauphin who's hanging around south of the Loire. And and he's a bit of a hopeless case anyway, they think. So the future of France is going to be the glorious King Henry V and then his baby son, Henry VI. And I think the thinking is that England will become a sort of backwater irrelevance once the government is firmly established in Paris as it ought to be. And presumably then after Henry V dies reason, reasonably quickly, that plays into Burgundian's hands because Henry VI is a child and therefore weak. And is, therefore... is a puppet, really. Yeah. And so there's a government in English France, what we would call English Burgundian France, that is the northern part of France, run by the Duke of Burgundy, the son of the man who got murdered, and the Duke of Bedford, Henry VI's uncle, a very, very able man, a man of great integrity who's married to the Duke of Burgundy's sister. And for a while, this sort of works during the 1420s and the Armagnac French are really being kept at bay. They're being driven back further south. And by 1429... There is a siege going on at Orléans and it's a siege that feels pretty crucial because if the English and Burgundians manage to take Orléans, take the city, that is their route south over the Loire. And if the Armagnacs, if the Dauphin gets pushed back much further than that, the risk is that the English and the Burgundians are just going to overrun the southern half of France. We know it didn't happen, but I think it's really important to think our way back into the late 1420s and the real danger that the Armagnacs were going to become a footnote in history and the English and Burgundians were going to be the rulers of France. And at this crucial time of, well, it's chaos in many ways, isn't it? And, and out of this fog of war steps the unlikely figure, which nobody, you know, no one could ever have predicted this was going to happen, of Joan of Arc. So it, can you just give us the start of her story, where she came from and uh, up to that point? Well, in a way, the start of her story needs to be the moment that she walks into the palace at Chinon. I, I think politically we need to see it that way because, as you say, totally unexpected She's 17, she's a peasant girl, and she's turned up at Chinon, this great palace where the Dauphin has made his headquarters, to say, right, God has sent me to lead your army. It's madness. But it's a necessary kind of madness, because the Dauphin, he thinks he's king at this point, but he's not a very inspiring figure. He does very well at ordering himself rather glamorous suits of armour, but he doesn't do so well when it comes to putting them on and actually riding at the head of his troops. So a huge problem for the Armagnac cause in the 1420s has been they've been looking for a general. They've been looking for someone who can win battles for them. It's not their king, the Dauphin. Um, but in the absence of him being willing to do that or able to do that, Who's going to do it for them? They've tried various things. They've invited the Scots over. That didn't go well. Um, They're looking around and no one is on the scene. But it's clear, really, at Orléans, the siege has been going on for six months. It's a stalemate. 
it's not even a siege that is managing to surround the town completely. You can still get in and out on one side of the town. So the English are a bit desperate, but the Armagnac French are a bit desperate as well. They need a miracle. And the one person who knows that she might have a chance of finding a miracle is the Dauphin's mother-in-law, Yolande of Anjou, who's one of the most formidable politicians in France in this period. And she's got contacts all over in France. And she's heard tell of this peasant girl. Joan, there in her village at Domremy, has been hearing voices. And the voices have been telling her that she must go to the Dauphin, she must lead the army, and she will drive the English out of France. So what she's done is she's managed to persuade the husband of one of her cousins to take her to the local Armagnac garrison and so that she can say, I've got to go to the Dauphin, take me to the Dauphin. It's hundreds of miles cross country. She's out in the far east of France. And initially, the captain of the garrison sends her back to her family. She's obviously out of her mind. But word of this young woman gets to Yolande. And Yolande knows that if you need a miracle... A 17-year-old peasant girl claiming to lead an army might just be the miracle you need. It's sufficiently insane <laughs> that it might actually do the work of inspiring people. And so she sends word that, yes, Joan is to be brought to Chinon. It's hundreds of miles. She has to be dressed as a boy in order to keep her safe. She's got six men-at-arms with her, but she's escorted by night, riding across country until she gets to Chinon, at which point... She's closeted away with various people trying to work out if she is actually mad or if she might have something about her. They decide it's worth a shot because she's certain of what she's saying. She's extremely charismatic and she's just saying, take me to the Dauphin. So that's what they do. And they decide to give her a chance. They don't immediately put her at the head of a huge army, but they give her a small number of soldiers and they send her to Orléans. So how, you say a small number, what size of army does she lead there? A few hundred men, um, and she's smuggled into Orléans by the back door. And of course they're desperate in Orléans, they're looking for a miracle, they've been under siege for six months, they're having an awful time. And this young woman on a white horse wearing specially made armour that they've, they've had so made So they've already for her. made her armour at this point? They've made her armour, because if you're going to try and stage a miracle, you've got to make it at least plausible. So they've got her a beautifully custom-made suit of armour. They've put her on a good horse, and they've made sure she can ride it well enough. And they've sent her off with some soldiers, but there's no real plan. When she gets into Orléans, everyone's going, what happens now? And Joan knows what she wants to happen now. She wants to attack. But all the soldiers, the, the commander in Orléans is going, is this what we're supposed to be doing? Anyway, Joan manages after a couple of days. I mean, even most of the soldiers she's gone with have been sent home. She has to send a message saying, can they come back, please? I need to attack. Eventually, she manages to persuade. Basically, her tactic is attack now. God is with us. But that is exactly the message that the Armagnacs have lost in the fog of war over the course of years. It's all become so murky. They've lost confidence. They've lost purpose. And suddenly they've got this extraordinary young woman saying, come with me and God is with us. And the English are terrified when they see this extraordinary attack launching itself at them from out of the gates of Orléans. And is she leading that attack? She's leading her, that in attack. In her armour, on her In her armour, on her horse, carrying a banner that has been specially made for her, a white silk banner with a picture of 
Jesus on it. I mean, there are various descriptions, whether it's God or Jesus, but it says Jesus Maria on it, huge white silk banner, and she's in shining armour on a white horse. She has a sword at her side because she doesn't know how to fight. She's 17 and she's a girl, but what she is is extraordinarily brave. So she rides out at the head of her troops. And what happens time and again in battles that she's involved in is she gets hit by a missile, she falls, and then she stands up again and she gets back up and the soldiers go with... It it takes four days for her to drive the English away from Orléans after a siege of six months. And it's because she has that belief. She's inspired the men who are following her and the English don't know what they're facing. They think she's a witch, she's a whore. They're lobbing all sorts of insults at her, but she believes in her purpose. And she believes in her purpose in a very simple way, not this complicated, well, we're all French, but we've had a civil war and who's right? She just says, the English should not be in France. I am going to drive them out of France. They should leave now. And if they don't leave now, I'm going to kill them all. And the English flee? The English flee from Orléans after four days. And then she and the growing numbers of men that she's got behind her chase them out of the Loire Valley. It's a defeat such as the Armagnac have not been able to inflict on the English for a very long time. Handily, it is the English who were besieging Orléans, not the Burgundians. So Mm. the simplicity of Joan's message works in that context. But it's the start of something. And once that victory has been won, she then says, right, I'm going to take you to your coronation, my lord. Kings of France were traditionally crowned at Reims, which is in Anglo-Burgundian hands. But Joan leads this now great army, cross-country, takes him to Reims, gets him crowned with her standing beside him. It's a matter of days turning into weeks, turning into a couple of months, but she is sweeping everything in front of her. And was that the high point of her That was absolutely the high point of her career. The point about a miracle is that it's an extraordinary moment. And once the miracle is over... In other words, once the tide of the war has begun to turn, once the Armagnacs have started to believe in themselves, once the Dauphin has been crowned king, once the Burgundians have started to think, do you know what, maybe we should think about a peace treaty with the Armagnacs because this is all getting a bit much and actually the Duke of Burgundy has got interests further north now in the Low Countries, in the Netherlands, that he would quite like to concentrate on. The diplomats move in, the politicians move in, the other generals move in. At that point... Having a 17-year-old peasant girl on your battlefields or leading your armies, it starts becoming a liability rather than, you know, the miracle's done now. Thank you, Joan. You can go back to your village. Joan didn't want to go back to her village. Joan saw herself as fighting for France, fighting for God. She wanted to carry on commanding soldiers. What happened to her next then? Well, she wanted to take Paris. Paris was still in the hands of the English Mm. and the Burgundians. And the trouble was, because she'd just won this, these great victories, she'd stood by the king as he was crowned at Reims. They couldn't just put her back in her box. They said, OK, we'll march on Paris. She rescued Orléans in four days, and that had been pretty miraculous. They gave her one day to try <laughs> to take Paris, the best defended city west of Constantinople. Surprise, surprise, it didn't work. But what it meant was that her dauphin, her king and his advisers could say, well, we tried that. We tried that. It didn't work. Clearly, God doesn't intend us to do that. Now, now we've got to make a treaty. Joan was outraged and heartbroken, but she really has become surplus to requirements. And they give her little bits of command here, there and everywhere, but they don't really know what to do with her. And she's getting quite 
agitated until the following May when she gets captured by the Burgundians at Compiègne in a little skirmish that's all she's been allowed to do by this time. So she'd quite quickly become a bit of an embarrassment. to the Yes. Um, she'd won this great victory. She'd accompanied the king to his coronation. She'd worked the miracle. Now the king was the king. Having a 17-year-old peasant girl hanging around the place didn't really work. So in some ways it played into his hands, the fact that she was burned by the English. It did if he could spin it, because obviously if she really was a heretic, as the English were saying, the English bought her from the Burgundians and staged a long trial, a very thorough trial. This wasn't a kangaroo court. They wanted to demonstrate that what she said about being sent by God was not true that the voices that were speaking to her were not made up. People in the 15th century believed that angels and demons could talk to people in the world. But their point was these were clearly not angels because God was not on the side of the Armagnacs, as far as the English and Burgundians were concerned. God was on their side. So these voices must be demons. So they spent months trying her to demonstrate that God was not, in fact, with her. Angels were not speaking to her. Um, and she was, in fact, a heretic. That was the inevitable conclusion they came to. Initially, when Joan realised that God was not going to rescue her, she had believed throughout her trial with extraordinary courage. She she defended herself. She believed that God was going to rescue her. At the last moment when she realised God was not coming, she recanted, said, yes, I am a heretic. Um, the terror was too much, and she was bundled off into prison put back in women's clothes, told she was going to be in prison for the rest of her life. And three days later, she couldn't live with herself. She went back on her recantation, said, no, God is speaking to me. These are angels. When I recanted, it was from fear of the fire. And that was what they needed to burn her. So they burnt her. I mean, it's a terrible and tragic, heartbreaking story. But for the side she left behind in France, what they had to do was spin this. She had been sent by God. She had been right when she'd won the victory at Orléans. She had been right when she'd stood by the king at Reims when he was crowned. But then she'd got a bit above herself. She'd got too proud. She'd got too above her station. And God had decided to punish her for her pride. So the less said about her now, the better. So she wasn't taken on as this sort of martyr figure? Not at all. The less said about her, the better from the point of view of the people she'd left behind. At this point, once she's been burned, it's the English and the Burgundians who want to shout about her because they've proved she's a heretic, or at least the English do. The Burgundians are really getting a bit tired of the war by this stage. They're getting a little bit keen that it should all be solved and sorted out so that they can um, focus on their own interests, or at least the Duke of Burgundy is. So in 1435, just four years after Joan was burned, the Burgundians made a peace treaty with the Armagnacs and the poor old English, depending on whose side you're on, the poor old English are left out in the cold, fighting on their own to try to hold on to what they've gained. So the whole thing of her being this great heroic symbolic figure when did when did that all sort of 
restart? Well, it's gradual. She starts becoming a tourist attraction already in the 16th century. People are going to Diomede to see the house that she grew up in because her story is so extraordinary and, and the memory of what she did. In Orléans, she was always a hero. It's very interesting. If you travel around France now, you look at the statues of Joan, which are all over the place. But in Orléans, she's a warrior. If you go to Domremy, she's a holy saint, a, a little girl in the fields looking at her visions. <laughs> it's very, very different depending on where you go. Um, and, of course, in Rouen, she's a martyr because that's where she um, was burned. So interest in her never went away completely, but it's not really till the 18th and 19th centuries post-revolution, the nationalist movement in France, the arguments about whether France should be a monarchy or a republic, then both the political interest and the cultural interest, you start getting operas written about her, you start getting um, uh, plays written about her, and also real historical work on her. So there was some extraordinary historical work done in the 19th century and all the documents relating her to her trial and the second trial all got edited and published. So it's at that point that the arguments really begin about the role she played, about her role as an icon in the national story of France. But there's a real difficulty in the religious side of things because she was burned by a judgment of the Catholic Church. And in fact, her judges were French. The bishops who sat in judgment over her were Burgundian French within the castle of Rouen, which was being held by the English. But it wasn't English clerics who condemned her. It was the Catholic Church on that side of the civil war in France. And so making her a saint is very tricky when she's been burned by the Catholic Church, which is now being asked to make her a saint. So it takes a long time, and it's not till after World War I, when French soldiers had seen visions of her in the trenches <laughs> and so on, that I mean, the process had been put in train before World War I, but it's not till 1920 that she's made a saint, not as a martyr, because that would involve re-examining her right. burning, but as uh, a holy virgin who had displayed the virtues to a heroic degree. And she, you have to have miracles to support your claim to sainthood. I think there were four nuns in France who had been cured miraculously of their illnesses <laughs> thanks to the intercession of Joan. And she was spared the fifth. She didn't have to produce a fifth miracle because her rescue of France was deemed to have been miraculous right. in her own lifetime. And, I mean, her, her virginity seems to have been an important part of the story. Was that at the time or was that later on? Um, that at the time and later. Um, it's a theme in history that women can only be virtuous, can only be holy, <laughs> can only be approved of if they are chaste. And in the case of an unmarried woman, of course, that means being a virgin. So the first thing that happened when she turned up at Chinon saying... God has sent me. The first thing that happens is they put her into, into a room uh, with some virtuous ladies of the court and, and uh, women who know what they're talking about, appointed by the king's mother-in-law, Yolande of Anjou, to check that she's a virgin. Because if she's not a virgin, case closed. No one's going to listen to her anymore. And that also happens when she's captured and handed over to the English. The Duchess of Bedford is put in charge of the women who are going to examine her again because, again, if she's not a virgin, don't even have to bother trying her. It's a historical truth that sexual virtue, you can't have a voice as a woman if you are, uh, if you're a whore, forget it. 
And, I mean, her, her femininity seems to be a very big part of the story. And, and, and people are obsessed with this idea that she dressed as a boy or a man. They were obsessed at the time because the book of, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy, says that a woman dressing as a man is an abomination unto the Lord. And so, again, the the clerics on her side as well as on the other side, the other side just said, forget it, she's a woman marching with soldiers, she's dressing as a boy, case closed, she's clearly not virtuous in any sense, we don't have to listen to her, but her own side had to justify the fact that she was dressing as a man. Originally, she'd started wearing men's clothes because she had to make this long journey from Daimi to Chinon, and it was she was travelling with six men-at-arms, they had to sleep rough at night. She was much safer. In those days, men's clothes, men's hose, were tied on to the doublet with um, cords, and she, we know, had twice as many cords tying her clothes together as a normal man would. It was protection against rape. Um, And once she was back in female clothes in prison in Rouen, she was so much more vulnerable, and there's very strong suggestions in the evidence that she was sexually assaulted in those last few days once she was back in women's clothes. But the clerics on her side had to justify it and the justification was necessity. If she was going to ride with an army, she needed to wear armour and she'd had, again, had her hair cut short to look like a boy for disguise on that original um, journey, but it became part of her sense of her mission. But she knew she was a woman. She called herself the maid, La pucelle, it's a word meaning a young woman who is a virgin, a kind of adolescent virgin, an unmarried young woman. And it's very clever branding on her part because obviously there is only one virgin, the virgin, the virgin mother of Christ, but she's the maid, the maid sent by God. There is no pretense at being a man. Uh, She is a young woman in men's clothing sent by God to lead an army and that just shows how miraculous she is because... Women don't do this, but I can. She's become a feminist icon. She's become a gay icon. She's become a nationalist She's icon. become an anti-feminist icon. Um, traditionalist Catholics use her. Um, in, the, in, in World War II, she was used by the Vichy regime. They put up posters when the Allies bombed Rouen. Um, they had posters showing Joan in Rouen in flames saying, murderers always return to the scene of their crimes. Mm. Meanwhile, de Gaulle in London was broadcasting with a picture of Joan on the wall behind him. So, you know, she was being used by both sides in the war. Um, She has been used by Protestants as a um, sign of individual conscience against the repressive might of the Catholic Church. No such thing as a Protestant when she lived. Mm. Um, She's ultimately so malleable in the iconic form that she's come down to us that she can be used in an absolute myriad of ways. One of the most extraordinary, I always think, is um, there's a brand of beans in (laughs) North America, canned beans called Joan of Arc, the slogan of which is Joan of Arc, the heroic bean, exclamation mark. (laughs) So I think, and I also think she's had more pop songs written about her than if we discount Jesus and the whole gospel tradition, right, yes. I think she's had more pop songs written about her than anybody else. The list just. Well, I mean, she was su- it was such an extraordinary thing that this this girl was allowed to lead the French army. Exactly, and I think that has transcended time. That she did what should have been impossible for someone of her sex 
and someone of her class. It's a kind of double whammy. And also someone of her age given her class. And she had this blazing moment, died in the most awful, horrible way. But the charisma that was so palpable at the time, if you read the contemporary documents, you can, and particularly the trial, her voice comes through that trial. That charisma has blazed across the centuries. And so she remains always herself, even while she is being used by these many different causes, adopted by these many different causes. I don't mean manipulated by these causes, but I can see why people want to adopt her. She's one of the very few courageous, charismatic individuals whose story transcends history, really. Well, on that note, we will leave her to history. And thank you so much, Helen. It was great to have you on again. And if you want to read Helen's book on Joan of Arc, then do so. It's simply called Joan of Arc. And if you want to delve deeper into the Wars of the Roses, you could do worse than read Helen's book Blood and Roses from 2005, which tells the story of one family caught up in the chaos, the Paston family, whose many letters from the time still survive. And Helen, would you be okay to come back in the next episode and tell us about Henry VI's wife, Margaret of Anjou? I'd love to. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.